This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. You know, the Bible has a very positive view of marriage. After all, in contrast to the evil institution of slavery, marriage is the institution of God, instituted at creation. And at its best, in its best moments, a Christian marriage can be a beautiful living portrait of the church's marriage to Christ. So says Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. We, the church, are the bride, and Christ, our Lord, is the groom. But the Bible is also very realistic. The Word of God is true to life, and living in a fallen world with uh, sinners uh, leads to struggles, <laughs> can lead to problems, and at the, the lowest times can lead to deep personal pain and hurt. And marriage is not exempt. Christian marriage is not exempt. God knows that. I think a lot of us here know that as well, right? In fact, there are times when marriage will involve unjust suffering, wrongful suffering. In other words, suffering for doing what is right, what God has called us to do. And this is what Peter has been discussing in the broader sense. Remember, the broader theme that he's been carrying forward is an explanation of what it means to live as the people of God in this world, how to respond to wrongs, wrongful suffering that takes place under God-ordained authorities that he's calling us to submit to. As Christian citizens... And then he went to slaves in the household, or what we would call the, the workplace today. And now, as Christian spouses, and specifically he addresses, I think, Christian wives of unbelieving husbands. I know it does not say unbelieving there. It says, even if some do not obey the word, but in chapter 2 and in verse, uh, verse 8, those who do not obey the word are defined as unbelievers. So he is speaking here, I think, of wives who have unbelieving husbands. But not all do, and that's why you notice he says, even if some, even if some do not obey the word. In other words, he knew and believed that many were Christians. And secondly, another implication is what he's saying here applies to all Christian wives, not just to those who have unbelieving husbands, because he says, even if some. But Peter's focus seems to be primarily on wives who have unbelieving husbands. And why would he do that? Well, because their experience, their experience uh, most reflects the experience of the entire church, which was what? Well, it's what we've said already. It was wrongful suffering, wrongful suffering under ungodly authority that he calls us to submit to. 
And so as Peter fleshes out what it means to to be the people of God, to live as the people of, of God under unjust authority, he applies it to these three Uh, situations where people in their time in those contexts would have little to no ability or power to flex in order to get out of those situations. We talked about as Christian citizens they had very little hope to overturn the Roman Empire. As Christian slaves they had very little hope of changing slavery though some maybe could get out we said last week and now He addresses the believing wife of an unbelieving husband because, once again, she would have very little flexibility of power in her cultural setting to bring about uh, changes. He calls her to what he calls all of us to do, which is at times endure unjust suffering. And so, let me say it again another way, the qualities, the spiritual qualities that Peter calls wives, Christian wives, to display are simply a specific, narrow, subheading, sub-application of what he's calling all of you, all of us, to do, right? He said in chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That applies to all of us. He said in verse 19, some of us will have to endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. And then he said in verse 21, to this you have been called, all of us, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you, all of us, an example so that we might follow in his steps. So the narrow focus of his application of that principle at this point is to Christian wives of unbelieving husbands. But he's speaking to all of us and His point would be this, if I sum up his point to Christian wives, it would be a Christian wife should live with her unbelieving husband so as to seek to win him to Christ by displaying Christ-like spiritual qualities. Let me repeat that. The message to her, the narrow application, is that a Christian wife should live with her unbelieving husband so as to win him to Christ, to seek to win him to Christ by displaying Christ-like spiritual qualities in her submission and so forth. But the under, undergirding uh, reality, spiritual truth underneath that, that applies to all of us, is the reality, the affirmation that God can work through Christ-like character, godly living, to bring about fruit that glorifies him, you see. That applies to all of us. That's what he said up in verse 12 of chapter 2. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, such as an unbelieving husband might do to his wife, and a, uh, the empire might speak against the Christians, or a master might say against the slave, when they do that, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. On the day of visitation. So in that sense. uh, We're still under this principle. And thinking about what he says to us. All of us. Okay. Now I know. The day and age in which I live. (laughs) I know where I am right now. (laughs) And I know when I am. And so. 
do you? So we can just admit right at the beginning that it is a shock to our modern ears and the culture surrounding us. It would be a shock. To, to, it's a shock to speak of submission of any kind, <laughs> especially in our setting, in our anti-authoritarian uh, time, in our, in our epoch, our era of the sovereign self as we've been talking about it in the time of demanding our own personal rights where uh, truth is what you define it to be, you see. It's hard to speak. It's a shock to speak of submission at all. It's harder to speak of the submission of a Christian wife to her Christian husband. And it's impossible to imagine calling a believing Christian wife to submit to an unbelieving Husband, a man who rejects Christ, a man with a different worldview, with a whole different set of values, with different loves, and a man who, in her case, and ours too, serves other gods. Oh, that's unimaginable to our modern years, but this is what Peter calls us to because it is the plan of God, and because we don't suffer for no reason, but there is a joyful prospect set before her. That joyful prospect is what? That you might win him. You might win him by God's grace to the forgiveness of sins. Win him to know the peace you know with God. Win him to eternal life, you see. And so he calls her and he calls all of us to see it in that same perspective of, of, the, of the cross of Christ, who for the joy set before him, Hebrews says, endured the cross. Endured the cross. And so he calls her and he calls each of us to see it from that perspective. The joyful prospect that someone might be one to Christ through your, your behavior. Now, let me say the obvious. This is not a feminist text. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah. I think you know that. But we, uh, we will make no apologies to our time because God knows things about human beings that they don't, that the culture doesn't. And what God desires is not some narrative to squash you. What God desires is shalom, peace, wholeness, well-being, human flourishing. And human flourishing comes when we live within God's designs, within His plans. And so as she uh, is to submit herself to her husband, she is to display what I'm calling four spiritual qualities which really apply to all of us, the qualities that we submit in different contexts, right? But one, the first one, I will get to in a few moments. But before we go there, I want you to appreciate again uh, how this would have come to her in that first century context. We're back to where we were last week when we talked about a slave. I mean, we're just so far removed from that. But, and even though we have marriage, we still are far removed from her reality. In the first century Greco-Roman society, it was expected that the wife 
would have little to no friends of her own and would worship the gods of her husband. And order was important to them because prosperity and and well-being were seen as dependent on mysterious religious forces, you know, the gods. And so disorder in the home was a threat. It was a threat to not only to the family, but it would be a threat to the, the society. And so if a woman uh, in the Greco-Roman culture suddenly became a Christian, suddenly came to faith in Jesus, this would mean she'd stop going to temple sacrifices. And she'd be sneaking out, you know, going to gather with this small little group of people that uh, drink somebody's blood and eat somebody's flesh, you know. And all of this, you see, all of this was being, would be seen as being insubordinate. And this could all upset the gods and it could come down on all of us. And so the conversion of a woman in the Greco-Roman context was a culturally explosive situation. And the husband's social standing was threatened. And a wife with a defiant sort of obnoxious attitude about it all would only make it worse, you know would only, like, ignite some of these problems that could compound all of them. And so as Peter's concern, in part, is that the wife respond in such a way as to not bring this to an explosion and to know how to endure unjust suffering, that she might see her husband come to the faith. This was to be her goal. This was to be her passion. This was to be her desire. And so that's what he lays out before her. Now I do want to make a comment that this should not be taken, this passage should not be taken as a call to marry an unbeliever in order to win him or her to the faith. That's, this is not an evangelistic marriage that he's talking about here. This is a marriage between two unbelievers that became mixed. It became mixed because apparently she came to the faith. So this is not about missionary dating. (laughs) So let's see how he starts. He says, likewise, here's the basis. He's He's grounding her behavior, what he's calling to her to do in this way. He says, likewise, wives. Likewise, what do you mean likewise? Well, as Christians must submit to government that can be unjust, as slaves must submit to their masters who can be unjust, but most importantly, in the nearest context, as Christ. As Christ submitted himself to unjust suffering on your behalf, and he submitted himself to the Father's plan, likewise, likewise, Wives, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Be subject. Again, it's the same verb, the same form. He says, submit yourself, subject yourself. Be willing uh, to voluntarily align yourself under uh, your husband's leadership. And notice he says, your own husbands. (laughs) She owes this to no other husbands. (laughs) There is, she owes it to no other man in the same way like this at all because there's a uniqueness to the dynamic of the marital relationship, the headship of the husband and the wife's submission reflecting Christ and the church. 
Now, I want to make another aside here. This is voluntary on her behalf, but neither here nor anywhere else in the Bible uh, is this directed towards the husband. Nowhere does it say, husbands, subject your wives to yourself. (laughs) Or make sure, husbands, that you cause them to submit. It has nothing to do with that. This is directed to the wife to take on the Christ-like character and humility and to align herself in the Father's plan, just like Christ did under the Father's plan. And so, again, Peter tells wives what he is telling all of us, beloved, so don't tune out. This is, these principles apply to all of us. Following Jesus, that's what you're doing. You're a Christian. Following Jesus involves not only believing in Him, praise the Lord, but responding to wrongful suffering under unjust authority, just like He did. Just like He did. Not attempting to exert power uh, to break this yoke per se, but trying to follow in His steps. Uh, entrusting yourself and entrusting, we said, this whole situation, entrusting it over to the good shepherd and the overseer of your life and your soul. And why does he call us to this? Because he healed us, he says. You have been healed, healed by his wounds. You are now dead to sin, dead to sin's absolute authority and control of your life. And you are now alive to righteousness, he says. Alive in him. And so it is because of the cross. It flows from the cross because of the power and the new life and the Holy Spirit who comes from the cross. He calls us all to begin to live like this, and we can. By his grace. And so as she is to submit, once again, she displays these four spiritual qualities which belong in all of us uh, Uh, whether we're wives or husbands or singles or what have you. And the first quality is this attractive behavior, attractive character and behavior. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, here it is, they may be one, that is one to Christ, one to the faith, without a word by the conduct of their wives. The the word conduct is that word he's used several times. The, The way of life the way of life of their wives. Now, it's interesting. He says, without a word. What's that mean? Well, it doesn't mean without any words whatsoever, ever, ever. Silence, absolutely. (laughs) That's, of course, not what he means. There's a play on words here, and I don't, no pun intended by me either. There's a play on words here. What he says is, he's disobedient to the word, so you win him without a word. (laughs) That's what he's talking about. Don't wear, what he's getting at is don't, don't wear him down now with words. He's heard the gospel. And there's a time when, 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 when the, it has to shift to your character and your testimony and not trying to wear him down with words. And it's natural, it's natural to desire to communicate, especially between spouses and one spouse who's come to faith and come to understand the gospel. You truly believe that Jesus is the answer to sin, eternal life, and you have that hope, and of course you want to talk about it, but there's, he's heard it, and he's heard enough. 
Uh, it's, 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 there's, a, there's, there's a tendency among some. Why does it come home uh, to unbelieving husbands? You should have been at church today. You should have heard what he said. You should read this book and so forth. You know, I shared in the first hour. We had, we had a, a gal in our church many years ago. I'm safe to share it because she's long gone. It's been more than a, a decade and a half. But she would go home and she'd be taking home the CDs of the, uh, of, of the sermons and the cassettes. And she was, I didn't know what she was doing, but she was getting them every week. And finally, she, they moved away. They went somewhere back east. And, and she sent a question she had. And so I called her to talk about it. And her husband answered the phone. So he answers the phone, and I start talking. He goes, oh, I know you. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, he heard my voice over and over and over. She was constantly playing the tapes, you know. Listen, I think what, what Peter's getting at is there comes a time when he wants, he wants a wife, not a built-in constant evangelistic podcast, you know, in his ear. It's times just to be his wife. Proverbs 10, 19 speaks of the fact that in the abundance of words, <laughs> there will be sin. <laughs> and that's what Peter's talking about. But now, this is not to be taken as a substitute for communicating the gospel. Not at all, right? We said this is not some sort of absolute silence. Peter does not believe for one minute that someone could be one to the faith without ever hearing the gospel just by watching you. Not at all. He said in chapter 1 that you've been born again by that living and abiding word. And what is the word? Chapter 125, it is the good news that was preached to you. So he doesn't think at all that, that we must never share the gospel in some circumstances or that a believing wife of an unbelieving husband should not share the gospel. It's that there's a time when the shift needs to take place. Like we said last week with, from Titus 2, we can talk about God, but then we need to adorn the doctrine of God with our behavior, make it attractive. So he's speaking here of an attractive, uh, attractive way of life and character and conduct. He calls it, look how he describes it in, chapter, in verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Respectful and pure. Now, respectful, once again, Respectful, once again, is that word fear, which in Peter, he says, is reserved only for God. Remember? Honor everyone, but fear God. And so I think what Peter is saying is here is that as you submit to him, this does not mean you will follow him into sin. Let him see that the fear of God in you is real in your purity, in your pure conduct, in your life, that you're you're not going to follow him where you shouldn't go because of the fear of God is genuine in your heart. And notice that he says, when they see, when they see, there it is. Win him through his eyes now, not through his ears. Show him, show him what Christ can do to someone's life. So the first quality is an attractive lifestyle, an attractive behavior or conduct. The quiet preaching of a beautiful life, a lovely life. Now the second quality is internal beauty, a focus on the internal beauty versus the external 
Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning or your adornment be the hidden person of the heart. The heart, the, where everything comes from, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty. There's another word he loves to use, imperishable, eternal beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious, very precious. Now, we must not uh, press Peter's words here too, too far, too literally. There are some uh, church traditions that, uh, that think that Peter's goal here is to prohibit certain things that women can't wear. You know, can't wear gold jewelry. If we take it that way, then you can't wear clothes either, right? I mean, that's what he says. So, of course, that's not what he means. What's Peter getting at? Uh, Peter's not trying to prohibit specific things. He's trying to promote inner character. Don't let your heart be dominated by thinking that the best way to win your husband is to constantly focus on your outside and neglect the inside, you see. Even an unbelieving husband can appreciate the beauty of, of character and the, and the beauty of this gentle and quiet spirit. I think that's what he's focusing on. Uh, focus on the internal because it is imperishable versus the external. And boy, of course, in t today there's a tremendous amount of pr cultural pressure on women to look like these models that, uh, you know, starve themselves and then... And then they have these photographs taken, which are all airbrushed and under special lighting. And then you find out they don't look like that at all. You know, um, There's a tremendous amount of pressure. There's some pushback now in the culture about this because some have come out saying it's, they almost died trying to be models, you know, doing these sorts of things. So there is a tremendous amount of pressure, but, and it takes courage to, re, to stand against that and say all of that is ephemeral. All of that's fading. None of that is permanent. What matters more than anything is my character, you see. My character. Now, the other side of the coin is this. Peter's also not, don't swing the pendulum all the other way. Peter's not saying, ladies, just let yourselves go. Forget about it, you know. That is not what he's saying. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this is the kind of woman who would say today, she doesn't, she's not impacted by these influencers, as they call her today, right? She's not a fanatic about her, uh, her outward uh, appearance. She's not a fanatic about makeup or physical beauty. She's not a fanatic about the new styles and the new clothes and, and all those things. She is not that way because she understands that what matters to God is the condition of her heart and her soul. Uh, she is seeking the imperishable beauty, and she values those things which God values. And she's learning to love those things that God loves, which is that imperishable beauty, as he puts it, of a gentle and quiet spirit. She values the heart. And that, again, is something we should all value, right? is the condition of our hearts. You remember uh, 1 Samuel 16 when uh, the prophet was sent to choose the next king from the sons of Jesse 
and he looks at all these burly, strong, older brothers. He says, surely he's the one. No, surely he's the one. No, come on, maybe he's the one. No, the Lord says, you're going to pick this little, little guy here called David. <laughs> Why? Because he says, the Lord does not see or look upon the outward appearance. As man sees, right? He looks upon the, the heart. He looks upon our, car, our characters. And I think part of what can happen in a marriage also is when husbands don't affirm this very thing. Uh, what I'm getting is you need to not buy into the whole must look like a model thing either. <laughs> uh, you need to affirm that what matters to you is, is the spirit, the conduct, the the. the the character that Christ has been shaping in your wi- wife over, over the years. After, um, this year will be 42 years of marriage for, for Sherry and I, and I can tell you that uh, what matters now truly is our capacity to love each other, not whether we look like we did on the night of our wedding, <laughs> because that's long gone. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no recouping it. <laughs> it's gone. Uh, and so we need to appreciate that too, men, uh, and, and remember that that's what truly matters and affirm it. You know, the late Dr. Barnhouse told a story about uh, a young officer, a, sol- a soldier, who was blinded dur- during a war, and he later married one of the nurses who took care of him while he was in, in the hospital. And one day, apparently, as Barnhouse notes, uh, the soldier overheard somebody say in, in, an, in another room, he was already married to her and they were gone, and he overheard someone say, boy, it was lucky for her that he was blind. <laughs> Since no one who could see would marry such a homely woman. And he heard it. The soldier heard it, and he, he walked toward the voice in the room, not seeing who it is, obviously. He walked toward the voice in the room and said, I overheard what you said, and I thank God from the depths of my heart for blindness of eyes that might have kept me from seeing the marvelous worth of the soul of this woman who is now my wife. And so that's what she's seeking to nurture in men. That's what we need to nurture in our wives as well, carefully. Gentle and quiet. Let's just take a couple moments thinking about that. Gentle, that's the word that's translated also meekness or to be meek. I know that uh, Brother Matt Hauk preached on meekness and the meekness of Christ some weeks back. And it's the same term here. And it's not to be confused with passivity or some sort of cowardice. This is not the result of being beaten down as a child or or beaten down by a domineering husband. Meekness is the ability to keep power under control and to be like Christ. The word was used of Christ, who, of course, had tremendous power and authority, but he knew when to wield it, how to wield it, and you could bring a child to him. And he'd be gentle with that child. But he's, that doesn't mean he, had, he lacked zeal. 
he, he had zeal. He went into the temple and overturned the tables, you see. So that's what he is talking about. A meek spirit is a willingness to, to be slow to speak, quick to listen, and to be teachable, to have a teachable spirit. Um, this is a good point to turn to the, the chapter on the, uh, the godly wife of Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 26 says she opens her mouth yes she does she opens her mouth with wisdom with wisdom and the teaching of and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue that's what she promotes that's the that's the idea of gentle here and then the idea of quiet again does not mean that she's mute but rather that she's tranquil there's a there's a sort of peacefulness and tranquility in her heart meaning what she's not combative she's not combative antagonistic she may still be creative. doesn't mean that Christian women all have the same sort of character, you know. They all need to be introverts or something like that. Not at all. She may laugh. She may be artistic. She doesn't need to be some sort of wallflower. But she's not always out to win battles. She's not out to prove things. She could be persuasive, but gently and humbly so. She doesn't do it by demanding or being obnoxious or assertive. And where does all this come from? How can this be shaped in her or in any one of us? It comes from what he says next. Because she's learned to hope in God. Like the ancient women of old, you see. Hope in God. This is really that, that root of all of this. Why? We said this whole book is about this. This whole, the, the series is called Living Hope for Suffering People. Because that's Peter's central emphasis we have a living hope in the resurrection and an inheritance that lies ahead for all of us and suffering in this life will only perfect our faith and as we heard read it is light and momentary compared to eternity and so she's learned to have that hope uh, hope in God look at verse 5 and 6 uh, if you would please for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And so he, he introduces the holy women of old as an example. Why? Because they hoped in God. What sustains a woman in a marriage like this is hope in God. She doesn't hope in anything else. She doesn't place her hope in her husband or in her own power to change the circumstances. She has her hope in God. And I would just say, by way of application to single gals, uh, that uh, you shouldn't place your hope in getting a husband either. Because what? Because human beings will let us all down. Your ultimate hope is the unchanging God. We sang together, God is faithful. God is faithful. Everyone else will let you down. If you're single today, you would look, in your mind, your heart, you desire to be married, you desire a good thing, but don't put your hope in it. Your hope is God. And that's what these women of old learned to do, to place their hope in the living God. And God approves of that. God desires that. 
Uh, God praises that. Psalm 147, verse 11, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. And that's exactly what we sang. We hope in His steadfast love, His loyalty, you see. Marriage is a covenant. A covenant. And God is the witness to it. But we will break our covenant. We will hurt each other in a covenant. God is a God of covenants. And He will steadfastly remain committed to His side of the covenant. He is true. His promises are real and genuine. And so she's learned to not place her hope in her husband or her own ability to win battles or to wear him down or change her husband. She knows she can't save him. I can't, I can't argue so good that his eyes are open when he comes to faith, you see. Her hope is in whom? The one who sees all things, knows all things. Her hope is in her Savior who alone has the power of saving grace and he could bring her husband to saving faith. And he specifically points out Sarah, so we should say something about that. He says that she's an example of these holy women. He says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You say, well, what, what, is, what does that mean? Well, he doesn't present Sarah as an example of perfection. He doesn't present Sarah because she is flawless. He only presents Sarah because of her example of submitting to a guy like Abraham, who's everywhere he went, says, tell people you're my sister, you know. Uh, he says that, but she did it with a certain tone and respect is what he's getting at. What, you know what he's getting at? He is actually quoting almost directly Genesis 18, 12, which is a very short little passage. It's interesting that Peter goes there. This stuck with him. In Genesis 18, the Lord sends his messenger, and that messenger was probably a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ, and he came to Abraham, and in Genesis 18, remember, he comes there and he says, guess what, Abraham, this time next year, Sarah is going to be pregnant, right? So he comes to them, and he says, Genesis 18, 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, here's the narrator, narrator's comments, Moses. Abraham and Sarah were old. And then he says, if you don't get what I'm saying, advanced in years. <laughs> and if you don't get that, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, okay? They're way out there. And so verse 12 this is where Peter draws from. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord, there it is, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Interesting, Peter refers to this little short, brief, offhand comment. You say, well, why, why that? Well, because I think, I think what Peter found remarkable uh, was that Sarah still referred to him with respect and dignity. Uh, that's what I think he, he, that, that struck him. You know, even in this little casual offhand moment, 
The kind of moments where we let our guard down, right? She could easily have said, you mean this old geezer? Really? But she doesn't. What we have in there is, she, my Lord, you see. And Peter grabs that and says, even in moments like that, she referred to him with that kind of respect. And he says, wives who imitate that are the daughters of Sarah. And keep doing good. What is the good he's talking about specifically there? Keep submitting to husbands and they become the daughters of Sarah. And it's this hope that really gives life to everything else she does and even to what he says next, which is the last quality is a fearlessness in the midst of this kind of situation. Verse 6, you are her children. If you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. That last word frightening is threatening, dangerous, or, or threatening. You know, the wives of unbelieving husbands uh, would be prone to fear their husbands because they could treat them harshly because their loyalty to God was undermining things at home and undermining things for his life and business and reputation. And they could be treated harshly and that people wouldn't have a problem with that. Divorce was an option in the first century in the Greco-Roman world. But for the woman, it would be tremendously more difficult to, to uh, make her way ahead unless they were part of these very rich and wealthy families or the sort of aristocracy of the Roman Empire. And so she would have reason to be afraid uh, or could be overcome by these fears of what the husband might do or what, the, what others might think or where, where following Christ is taking her. And so what he says is do not fear, and he uses the word fear for God alone. Remember, uh, do not fear the things that are threatening. We fear God. Because when we fear God, we need not fear in the same way other things and and other peoples, because God alone has the power and the authority to not only, remember, take our life, but cast us into an eternal hell. God alone has the authority to forgive our sins and cleanse them forever. So we fear Him. We reserve our fear and reverence of that kind for Him. And He says, when you're filled with hope like that and you fear the Lord, you may have overcome these things that feel threatening in your life. Uh, such as what she might face in her culture. And all of this now, beloved, all of this, be it the, uh, be it the purity of her character, be it her, 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 the, the gentleness and quietness of her spirit, be it, the, be it the fearlessness that she might display in threatening situations, all of this is the fruit of what Peter has been driving home in this whole letter, which is it's the fruit of having come to hope in God, having come to understand what it means to live out your life as the people of God in a fallen world where what, what matters is what's coming ahead in eternity, that inheritance that God has reserved for us. Those things, you see, that is what gives power to this, this heart and this soul and to all of us so that we might endure and come to the place where we don't give in to fears of what it might mean to follow Jesus living in our culture today. And Proverbs 31 again, the chapter of the godly wife, says in verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at what is to come. She laughs at the future. She's not consumed with 
keeping up with styles. You know what her clothing is? Strength and dignity, stability. And she could laugh at the future because it's all in her Lord's hands. It's in God's hands. Uh, And this is to characterize all of us. We are to entrust our circumstances to the good shepherd and learn to overcome these fears. Now, Peter doesn't say certain things that I think need to be said in our time and in our context. Not all fear is wrong, just like not all anxiety is wrong. We've talked about about that before. Paul was anxious for the churches because fear and anxiety, some fear and some anxiety, is given to us by God as a warning light that something's terribly wrong. It's like your angel light, right? Something's wrong. You better, you better address it. We are not to be overcome by these fears, but we are to recognize them. And I would have to say, what he doesn't get into here is that women who are abused, women who are abused by their husbands are justified in being fearful. And when a woman is physically abused by her husband and cannot bring about some sort of peace or reconciliation, she has every right to fear. And our polity here is she has every right to leave that household until she, and if they have children, until she and her children can be assured of their safety. Not, Not assured that everything is healed, but assured of their safety, not, I know not every church has that polity, but that has been our polity to, to this point. And if this is happening, if this is happening, a wife needs to reach out, to reach out to someone immediately. Abuse is sinful. It's unacceptable. And in fact, it is against the law. And so if this is happening, In anybody's case here, or as it has in the past, you need to reach out immediately. And I'm talking, of course, of physical abuse, but then there's there's all these other, uh, you know, cases of uh, relentless and uh, uh, endless verbal and emotional abuse that some husbands just heap upon their wives relentlessly. You know, sometimes with the hope of what? With the hope of breaking down their faith. Uh, Or pushing her to the point of seeking divorce so she can be the bad guy in all of this. Well, she sought divorce, you know. I'm getting into another area which is hard to define, right? I mean, what constitutes verbal abuse? How much? How long? What? You know, all that. But this much, I just wanted to be, be very clear Um, A submissive spirit, a gentle and quiet spirit does not mean allowing this kind of abuse, verbal and emotional, to continue and never confronting his sin, nor seeking someone's help to help you confront his sin. You know, this quiet, submissive spirit does not mean be his verbal, emotional punching bag for the rest of your life. No, that's wrong. And his sin needs to be addressed. It needs to be confronted. Well, I won't go any further with that. 
But I don't want to end on that either. So let's come back for a moment. The qualities, spiritual qualities that God may work through to bring others to give Him glory. An attractive behavior. Conduct. An internal beauty, a focus on the heart versus the external. Hope in God, which is the root of it all, and, and a fearlessness in the face of certain threats to a degree, as I just qualified them here at the end. Qualities displayed with that joyful prospect, which we should all have before us. Why live in, in this world the way we do? Why endure some suffering unjustly, wrongful? Why keep doing good in the face of it? Because of that joyful prospect, what? That you might win him. That he might be won. I want to say to you, that's happened. That has happened in marriages, and it's happened here in this church. It can happen in your life as well. Find hope in God. Don't seek to do this in your own strength. Hope in God that he may give you the grace to be a light right there in the face of close-up darkness. Let's pray.